Now, I actually hesitated to title this sermon because it's really not as simple as old versus new so much, but sermons need titles these days. But as we'll see, it's, it's much more of a true versus false kind of vibe as we dig into this text. <laughs> and, and this is an interesting one because we hear this example of wine and the wineskins especially all the time. And, you know, there are countless illustrations that have been made through this passage. But the question that we need to ask first is what does this passage actually mean? What does it actually say? You know, there's a saying in my profession, you know, amongst other clergy that'll say, oh, that'll preach. When they think, when they come to a certain text or a colorful example or a certain illustration that they come across in life, oh, that'll preach. And uh, yeah, that's important to have things that are worth talking about. But the question we must first ask is what does a text mean, not just what you can preach from it? You guys will see what I'm talking about in one minute. But uh, first, let, let's start unpacking the text, going backing up to verse 14. Because it's important to ask who is raising this question. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now that is John the Baptist, of course, not John the Apostle. Uh and unlike the Pharisees from the last paragraph that we covered in this text, this was a genuine question. Uh, now, unlike the Pharisees in their hypocrisy just trying to start trouble, this disciple of John really just had a genuine question. And therefore, Jesus doesn't answer with a rebuke or with a harsh tone or a go find out what this means, like he did with the Pharisees, but he gives a genuine answer and fleshes that out with these beautiful illustrations. And that's because if you think about it, Jesus never answers a question. He never does. He always answers the questioner. There's a big difference, which is why... You know, the Pharisees never get a straightforward answer from Jesus because they always had bad intentions. So Jesus rebukes them when they ask questions. But to those who are genuinely seeking, Jesus guides them to the truth with gentle illustrations like a patient teacher. I, for one, am glad that Jesus treats us like that because I sure have questions. I'm willing to bet you guys do too. So we're grateful that our God doesn't think less of us if we have questions about the faith or about a passage. I had questions about this text this week as I'm going through it and preparing for this. So it's a good thing to have questions if they come from a good heart. And his question was simple. The Pharisees fast. The other righteous people I know of are fasting. Why aren't you? Why aren't you guys doing all this, this tradition that we all do? And that's a great question. But first we have to answer, what's fasting in the first place? I'm not going to take a whole lot of time unpacking this because we did so already back in chapter 6. Uh, but a basic definition is the deliberate foregoing usually of food for the purpose of spending time with God. It's often in conjunction with humility, grief, and recognizing your utter dependence upon God even more so than whatever it is that you are foregoing. It should call to mind what Jesus said in the wilderness back in Matthew 4, where he said, man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, esteeming what is from God even more important than today's lunch. That's, that's kind of the point here. And as with everything else in the scriptures, it's a, a more about the heart than what's actually going in or out of your, your stomach, I suppose. Because it's about the attitude of the heart that makes all the difference. Now, fasting was required once per year under, uh, under Levitical law. For Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a day of mourning and fasting and seeking the Lord. Um, yet by this time, the time of Jesus, it became a tradition. And some commentators even say it was becoming required for people to fast twice a week under the law. Now that's interesting because you go, you go from one to 104 times a year. That's a big difference. Big difference. And not because God commanded so but because it was a man-made addition to the law. Now, if you want to fast twice a week or three times a week, go for it. Do as your heart desires, but do it because it's something you want to do, not because some religious guy in a robe or a suit or whatever is telling you that's what you need to do. Because our authority is God's word, not man. Um. And do it not because, because that's something you want to do, because it's doing it unto itself is not going to make you more pious or more holy than the person sitting next to you in the pews. That's not how this works. It's a great aid to our worship, and it ought to be done from time to time, but only if it's done for the sake of doing it, not to, for the sake of gaining something from God or for the sake of impressing others which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing, but we already covered that in a previous talk. Sadly, this, this trend of adding to God's word with the same authority of God's word has been happening for years. It still happens today. Even today, there are denominations that require fastings on Fridays, certain types of fasting on Lent, uh, holy days of obligation, or... Or other similar facets, like requiring you to say certain prayers a certain way, a certain number of times before the church recognizes that you are forgiven. Some of you have come from those churches. And you guys know that if you don't do it exactly that way, they'll even look down on you like you're some kind of second-class Christian for not doing it their way. Those of you who know, know what I'm talking about. And you know the emptiness that are there. but And I'm sure somebody somewhere is blessed and enjoy doing it that way. But I really believe from all the people I've talked to, most people just feel condemned by that. Feel like they didn't measure up to this thing that God had required them to do when they inevitably break their fast. Or they feel like they have let God down. And they live with the guilt and the weight of that. When really, you never let God down. You just let man down. Something we should all be a lot more comfortable doing. But it's not a Pharisee that Jesus is talking to in this passage. Jesus is responding to a genuine question of, the, of, the, of a disciple of John in verse 15, where he says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
And before he finishes that point, he makes a great point right there. Because it's always inappropriate to fast the way the Pharisees did it, in their hypocrisy. That was always the wrong way to do it. But it was even the wrong time for the righteous to fast. Because it was the wrong time. It was not a time for mourning and lamenting. It was a time for celebration. The promised Messiah who had been promised for thousands of years, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world is here. This is a time to celebrate, not to mourn. This is what all of the scriptures was pointing towards. It's a time to celebrate, just like a wedding. And Jesus' wedding example, spot on here. I love this. Because to anyone who's ever been married... You know what a pain it is to prepare for one. (laughs) I mean, just preparing a wedding day requiring the invitations, the guest list, the seating arrangements, photographers, videographers, dresses, the rehearsal dinner, flowers, decorations, favors. You guys want me to keep going? (laughs) Bring back too many bad memories for some of you people? (laughs) But it can be a pain, all of that stuff. (laughs) And the funny part is, Ironically, somewhere in doing all of that stuff, you have to prepare for the greatest commitment you're going to make in your life. Man, does our culture get this backwards, don't we? But when the wedding day arrives, it's no longer a time to stress about that stuff. It's no longer a time to be stressed out, worrying about all the final details. The day to rejoice had come. It's no longer a time to abstain from food and to fast and be stressed. It's a time to bring out the prime rib, not to fast. (laughs) And that's Jesus' point here. That's why Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting. Because they understood it was time to rejoice like a wedding day. And not to mourn and lament as the Pharisees were becoming so good at at that time. However, there was a time, he says, that they will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now, for years, I thought that that was talking about Jesus' ascension when he goes to be at the right hand of the Father and leaves the church for 2,000 years. Except uh, then you realize, wait a minute, no, Jesus is with us always, even until the end of the age. That's not what he's talking about here. What this is talking about is when Jesus was violently taken away from them to be crucified. And on that day, you bet that they mourned, lamented, and fasted. To this day, if you ever go to a Good Friday service, it carries that tone. That's what they're talking about here. That's what's going on. That time, they will fast. But not that is not a commandment for all churches for all time to have this tradition of fasting. It's still when, as you feel led by the Lord. But before we proceed, I, I, I just want to take a... Uh, bird's eye view of this for just a moment before we move forward because I really want us to understand this because the question the disciples were the disciple was asking of Jesus is essentially asking why Jesus and his disciples weren't more focused on the externals of the Christian religion what's going on that you can see that's visible that you can track to see how you're doing spiritually speaking 
such as fasting, such as praying, such as certain garments, such as whatever. Which is interesting because the true worshiper of of God could care less about what the externals look like. We value what's on the inside far more than what's presented on the outside. Because the true marks of true faith are not ardent church attendance, fasting, being on multiple church committees. You know we love our committees in this church, don't we? But that's not a sign of true faith at all. The the marks of true faith are these. Forgiveness. Pursuing personal holiness. Humility. Love. Sanctification. Concern for others. Having a desire to please God. Having a desire to enjoy God. Those are the marks of true faith. And look, you can fool yourself and everyone you know with the externals about the faith. You can be baptized and formally join a church and join every committee the church has and fool everyone into thinking you're a Christian, including yourself. But that's just the external stuff. If the internals are missing, though, that doesn't make up for that. You get what I'm saying? Jesus would later call these Pharisees who got this completely backwards. He would call them whitewashed tombs. These things that were beautiful on the outside, but inwardly were full of dead man's bones. He's saying that's what somebody who's like, who's only focused on the outside and not the inner life that Jesus invites us to have. So with all that as the backdrop, I want to then go back and finally see what Jesus is talking about here with this very famous illustration that he gives. When verse 16, he says, No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. So what is Jesus talking about here? Starting with the cloth. With the cloth, if you place a patch of new cloth on an old piece of clothing, when you wash it, the new patch is going to shrink and the old garment, because it's been washed many times, will just stay the way it is. So the patch shrinks and it tears at the tear it was put on to fix in the first place. You guys see the illustration that's going on? If you don't get it, ask the person in your family who does the laundry. They'll explain it to you. <laughs> About to find out who does what, which household chores around this place. So the point of it is that these two pieces of fabric, similar though they are, are not compatible to one another. One will tear at the other. And it's the same point with the new and old wineskins. When you put new wine into a wineskin, it expands. So when you fill it up and it'll expand, the wineskin will stretch. And... Uh, that's fine to do it once, but if you use the same skin twice, it'll be subjected to another round of stretching that it wasn't intended to hold. And because it wasn't designed to handle it, it will burst, ruining the wine skin, and the wine itself would pour out everywhere. 
The old simply could not contain the new. So what is this all meaning? What's this all getting at? In short, the Pharisees, in their pharisaical, legalistic, external-focused, self-righteous system that was prevalent in that day, could neither connect with nor contain the new covenant message of Jesus Christ. It couldn't contain it. Uh, Their law-focused religion had no room for grace, for forgiveness, or for salvation for people like Matthew, who was an outcast, or Gentiles like ourselves, may we add. We're all in this. They were being called to abandon their old system of thinking and to embrace the new way that Christ had been proclaiming to them. That's what's going on here. And for clarity, because people get confused about this all the time, the old wine is not the law, and the new wine is not grace, as some people have proposed throughout the years, because Jesus did not come to destroy the law. You guys know this from Matthew 5. He came to fulfill it. Came to fulfill it. If he came to destroy the law, we might have a contradiction on our hands. I wouldn't know what to make about that verse from Matthew 5 that I just spoke about. Because there is no tension between the Old and New Testament. We've always been saved by grace. We were never intended to be saved through the law. It's impossible. But there is a great tension between the old rabbinic tradition and the faithful message of the gospel of this coming Redeemer who would save us by grace that was prophesied from the early chapters of Genesis. It's between tradition and the gospel that there was no compatibility, no possible way to reconcile these two. Because what the Pharisees were doing, they were trying to use the law as their means to save themselves. But you guys know that's not how it works. You know, when we were going through the book of Galatians together, we talked about how the law was our tutor, our our teacher to lead us to Christ. The goal of the law was to show us that we couldn't be good enough to save ourselves. It was like the law was the law serves the same role that a mirror does. Because you don't clean yourself with a mirror, do you? You look into the mirror to see that you need to be cleaned. But you don't actually take the mirror and then start brushing your face with it. No, you look into the mirror, you see that you have a problem. And then you go get the right tools to clean yourself. That's what the law was to do, was designed to do. To show that we were sinners, broken, in need of redemption. And we would seek the grace of our God, who would give it to us. Beautifully and visibly on the cross. In that sense, Jesus is that new wine and his teachings, this system of grace that could not be contained in their current legalistic, law-based system. And make no mistake, the wineskin did burst. The wine did pour out. And we celebrate it once a month right here for communion. 
where his blood was spilled, when the Pharisees found no room for his grace-filled teaching and nailed him to the cross. He said, there's no room for this. And his blood poured out like wine. To this day, we celebrate that because Jesus allowed it so that outwardly and inwardly broken people like myself could be saved, could find grace and forgiveness, so that even I and all of us here could be welcomed into heaven, regardless of what our past looks like. But some people make an attempt to have Jesus and the old dead religion And that is as fruitless as putting new wine in old wineskins. It just doesn't work. One will tear at the other, and the other cannot contain the other. It's like the lukewarm church of Revelation chapter 3. It was good for nothing in its current state. Couldn't be used for anything. And sadly, many churches are like that. That there's too much dead religion and mindless tradition to be able to be used for anything good. It's stuck in its own ways to be useful. They they seem well organized and extremely pious and have very reverent worship services. But there's no emphasis on personal holiness. No emphasis on personal devotion to Jesus Christ. No desire to evangelize. No desire to reach to the lost and to the hurting in their community. You guys see the problem? Because a Christianity that is only focused on itself, only focused on the outside, rather, is not Christianity. It's a whitewashed tomb, just like the Pharisees were. It's a monument to their own piousness and their own holiness rather than being the hospital for sinners that Jesus calls his church to be. That's what it's talking about here. So as we learned last week, don't don't worry yourself trying to keep all the traditions, the feasts, the incense, the rituals, all of that other stuff. (laughs) The, um, the, The prayers, the prayer meetings, the this, the that, the other thing, what color the pulpit is this week. We don't have to be concerned with that stuff. I don't even know why the pulpit is the current color that it is or when we're going to change it. That's not the most important stuff. So the, the, the bottom line is this. Here's what I'm driving at. It's not concern yourself with all these extra things. It's go fall in love with Jesus. Go spend time with him. Find out who he is for yourself. Read his word and let him speak to you. That's the big thing. And all the other stuff that is worth investing in will come up in due time. And if you never read anything in God's word that says how often you should fast, when you should fast, what should we do during Lent, or what we should do during Advent, don't worry about it. You have my permission not to worry about that stuff. So one last illustration to make my point, and then I'll close. As many of you guys know, I, I was raised a Christian. My faith didn't really become my own until like my mid-teens and I really didn't, I was still growing into my faith in my late teens, early 20s. And <laughs> I had this great experience. I was, at, I was at work one day and I saw a bunch of people walk into the job site with a bunch of black stuff on their foreheads. 
And um, and of course, you know, me being, you know, only newly personally revived, I, I'm asking questions like, what's going on with this? And a coworker of mine comes in and he says, oh yeah, it's Ash Wednesday. That's a big day for us. And he named the name of his denomination. And I said, oh, oh, cool, Ash Wednesday. What's that? And he just kind of stared at me blankly. Uh, Good question. Let me get back to you with that. (laughs) A few hours later, towards the end of our shift, he said, oh, I remember now. It's the beginning of Lent. So I then asked, what's Lent? (laughs) He just stared at me blankly again. (laughs) And I never got an answer to that question from him. (laughs) Uh, I think we just went home after that and didn't talk again. Guys, so let's see the point here. Let's let's create a culture where we're not focused on the external things like that. With, with the outward-focused religion. <laughs> I could care less how often or infrequently you fast, how often or how you observe Lent, Advent, or any other man-made tradition. And yes, those are man-made traditions. That all started after the Bible was closed. What I do care about is whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not what you look like on the outside, but what Jesus is doing in your heart on the inside that matters. So let's focus on that, not what you put on your forehead or what you put in or don't put in your stomach. Focus on what matters. Focus on the inside. Focus on Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.